Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. I go back years. No, no, no. I go back many years. Well, maybe many, many years with this guest, who I've not talked to on the radio, though, for many, many years. Dog trainer based just outside Chicago, Peggy Moran. How are you? I'm great, Steve. Long time no talk on the air. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, you know, we talk occasionally in social media, and I want to talk about training uh, service dogs, which now you kind of focus on, uh, why that became a focus and how you train these dogs, because I think that is interesting. You have lived through the evolution of changes in dog training, which I think is exceedingly important to talk about as well. I'm recalling vaguely as to how you and I first met. I think it was a dog that I had named Chaser, a Brittany. You remember? I do. You you came out to my little farm in Lamont. Yeah, but it was worth it, you know. And at that point in time, the dog trainer choices just simply... Today, you have more choices. They, they weren't well, just... you know, there's, you can't have shame and, and evolve. You have to be able to say, I don't know, or I can do better, and you have to keep striving. And any tools, you know, at any time, the work that we do is, is impactful and can be harmful. And so we have to be mindful, it's a lot of fools, of, you know, like how what we do affects not just the companion dog we're working with, but the industry. You know, the things that we do can influence other people and help them either decide to use tools that help or that harm. So I think it's a great conversation we can have about this because we have a long history, and I have a history of looking at this through assorted lenses and changing my view over time. And I think I think that's important. I think you have to be able to grow and say, hey, there's a better way, and to embrace it. Well, and when I first came out to you with this dog a long time ago, uh, who was afraid of everything, we had, I think today you'd call it a rescue, Uh, rescued this dog who, uh, the good news, she was kind of house trained because whenever, whenever we would go outside, uh, something would scare her and everything in her would come out. I mean that's how terrified she was. She also had separation okay. she yeah. also had separation anxiety. So even when I went to use the bathroom and close the door to do what you need to do inside, she did the same thing on the other side <laughs> of the door. So she knew I was there, she knew I was in the house and still she did. and and today there are a myriad of solutions for some of these problems. Uh, there are pharmaceuticals or nutraceuticals that can help. They didn't exist back then. No. Veter- veterinary behaviorists didn't exist no. back then, but Peggy Moran did. And I will forever be grateful to the help you gave us because we had limited choices and it was worth driving all the way out to Lamont from where we lived uh, to do this. Have it's you... just interesting to have watched your evolution because, you know, first of all, you've maintained compassion and empathy for other animals. You even then, you weren't looking at it like this terrible dog is defiling my home. You worried about her and about how she was feeling and saw those behaviors as symptoms of her emotional responses to the environment. And we know so much more about this now. But I think even then, I could, you know, I understand how your trajectory formed off of you know, those first steps into, um, you know, looking at the emotions and the mind and the resulting behavior of other animals. 
Well, that's a good place to start. So do you have people that say, my dog has, say, separation anxiety, they come to you, but they refer to their dog as being a bad dog. Does that still happen? Um, it's funny. It's kind of flip-flopped. It, there was a period of time, I would say, in the 90s, which is after Chaser, um, where people started saying, I know it's me, I know it's me. And more recently, I do think that there is a little bit, for some people, of turning toward the dog and saying that the dog is a problem or it's a... I don't hear the word bad dog exactly, but I do hear people kind of look to blame the dog for the resulting behavior. And that's not, it's not good for anyone. You know, it's, we're not blaming the humans or the dogs. We're looking for what are sources to problem behavior and what are rewarding resolutions we can come up with Well, for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So... The number one reason, it turns out, why dogs die isn't cancer, it's not heart disease or diabetes or whatever you come up with. It turns out to be behavior. And that is still the case, especially for younger dogs, actually. They're given up to shelter. Shelters always can't, you know, we still have too many dogs in shelters, and therefore... That is the number one cause of death, our behavior issues. How important... Go ahead, talk about this. I can speak about that. Behind those behavior issues are people who are having behavior issues. Um, They they themselves are frustrated. They may think they've done everything in their power. They may have gotten bad advice, or they may be going off of historical, you know, kind of generational learning they had in their own homes. But in most cases with problem behavior, people are focusing on what they don't want, and and it becomes more and more um, prevalent in their mind and in, in their world, because as they're looking for what they don't want, and they're targeting, let's say, an unwanted behavior, they're not, that's not going to create solutions. That's going to create human reactions, and those are going to generate dog responses, and it just escalates. And I think teaching people to just pause and understand, and this applies across to the veteran community that I work with, and we'll talk about that, I know you said later, but asking for help takes a lot of courage. Saying, I don't know, takes extraordinary courage. And those two courageous first steps can lead towards such a turnaround that we might see less destruction of not only relationships between humans and dogs, but of dogs, as you mentioned, this great cause of loss of life. Behavior, quote, problems are through the lens of the human calling that behavior a problem. And what that means is they don't understand how to teach replacement behaviors. And I think through just this one change in focus, to look for what you want and know how to reinforce it, could completely turn around a lot of these unnecessary deaths. Wow. Okay. So what you said is a lot there, and I want to take a I'm chunk. Sorry. No, that's I'm a <laughs> it's wonderful. It's very articulate, and I want to take a chunk of that. So what the dogs are doing is they are just responding the only way they know how, given the emotional state that they're in. So right. a dog that is fearful that we call aggressive is responding the it's not that the dog goes to sleep at night 
and says, this is how I'm going to do this tomorrow. They are just responding, being canines. They're members of the family, but they're still canines. They're not humans. And, And they are responding the only way they know to do it. They're not doing this on purpose in any way or anything like that. The other thing no, I want... No, there's no choice, right. And it's responses, their, their behavioral responses are symptoms, not sources. Like when people see a dog performing an unwanted behavior, that becomes a starting point for a lot of human beings that, you know, they're focused on that behavior. Or I think when you can pull back and you can look at, as you said, the environment and the emotions within that environment... That's where we can focus our energy and make some extraordinarily important changes, and the behaviors are replaced more naturally and without conflict. All right. Now, I want to exp- we'll, we'll explain what the heck you just said when we come back right here on WGN with dog trainer Peggy Moran. Dog trainer Peggy Moran is here. We're getting into dog training philosophy pretty deep, and that's not a bad thing because it's good you have a better understanding of dog training and also where dog trainers come from and also as a result of where our dogs are coming from. So here's where we last left off, I think, Peggy. Uh, we don't want the dog to bark at the door. And instead of focusing at only saying, no, 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 at times you'd think that is the dog's name. Let's uh-huh. give the dog an alternative behavior not only because that way the dog isn't barking at the door, but also in the first place so the dog understands what we do want the dog to do rather than focusing so much on what we don't want the dog to do. Because if the dog is doing what we do want the dog to do, inherently the dog is not doing then what we don't want the dog to do. Right. They're is, incompatible. Yes. Yep. So can you can you talk about that given... I don't know. Let's, Let's take use your example. Yeah, Let's exactly. Use the door. Um, that's, I think that's a good one. Um, a lot of times, you know, you have a dog who's responding to a knock on the door, and people are first drawn to this behavior by the sound of the dog barking. So they are triggered by the dog's barking, but the dog has been triggered by something else, which is some element of the environment that generated in the dog, as you said, the dog is being a dog. He had a fear response or a defensive response, and then the bark came out as more of a respondent or reflexive behavior, not a choice. So when a knock generates an emotion and that emotion begets a bark, and then people react to the bark, we have this long chain that doesn't have to occur. What we do instead, and I know you know this because you're a behaviorist, is we like to counter-condition the dog, meaning change the way the dog hears that bark. And we can do that by using positive reinforcement, in this case, we'd use food. And if a pet parent knocks on a table really lightly, just one knock, and gives their dog a tasty bit of food, and knocks again on the table and gives a tasty bit of food, and gradually makes this game of knock-knock feed around the house, not on the door, so that it's not so overwhelming and has such historic roots in getting a bark, but maybe just changing how knocking, um, you know, actually influences the dog's perception by going knock-knock feed, knock-knock feed, and gradually we can knock harder or louder or move towards knocking near the door and feeding. Another thing you can do when you get to that point of knocking on your door is then toss the piece of food for the dog to redirect her energy away from the door to chase the food. And right there surfaces your incompatibility because the dog running away from the door to get food is not standing defensively barking at the door. 
I know that's a lot of words, so I'll stop right there for a minute. But <laughs> kind of, kind uh, of an example of how we do it. That's how we do it today, or at least, well, in truth, there's more than one way to do it, and and that's Correct. certainly one appropriate way to do it. Having said that, when you began dog training, I suspect many dog trainers, and even today, Peggy, and I want to talk about this, would say, all right, put a choke collar around the dog's neck, uh, or even an e-collar, you know, one of the electronic collars, right? And whenever someone knocks on the door, give them a zap on the e-collar. That was the common way. And you know what? Again, it still is among some trainers. So can you talk about... Why? Because you have desperate people, and not necessarily for knocking at the door per se. Let's say the dog is aggressive when people walk in. Now you've got desperate trainers, I mean, I'm sorry, desperate pet parents that go to trainers who say, okay, this is the way to do it. Can you talk about why punishment-based training or aversive training you've learned because you've evolved, you've been doing this a long time, uh, yep. that's not the way to do it. Well, again, what we used to focus on back in the day was what the client didn't want from the dog and what we as the trainer wanted to teach the dog to suppress, meaning to stop. Dogs aren't very good at stopping, and when you stop a behavior, the energy driving the behavior, the stress, the emotion behind it is simply mass. It doesn't go away. So now you get a bottling dog who's cumulatively building up with stress, and it's either really destructive to the dog himself or herself, or it's going to come out somewhere else in another behavior that may be just as unwanted or even worse. So the problem with just getting a dog to cease and desist is you may hide that symptom behavior, the bark, but you haven't changed how the dog feels. And because the dog is feeling uncomfortable, that discomfort can build and, as I said, generate more unwanted behavior. The thing about punishment is it hurts the dog for expressing himself but it doesn't teach him to feel differently or to behave differently. It just shuts him down. And I think, you know, it's, 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 it, we have learned that that's a cruelty. We have learned that that's unnecessary. If you can do it a way that's kinder and gets as good or better results, there's no argument to use harmful tools. I understand the owner's frustration in the scenario you gave. There are tools you can use to prevent unwanted behavior, while you're learning how to train your dog what to do instead. And using prevention can completely replace punishment. We call that management. And using management, we can say, hmm, I'm anticipating grandma is going to be coming over. Let's set the scenario up so that the unwanted behavior can't happen. And even using language like unwanted versus bad and wanted can, can really help us reframe how we're looking at the situation make it more of an experiment and a learning experience than just an argument or conflict. So along the way, and I'm going to ask you a tough question now, but you can handle it, I'm certain. Along, of course I can. Of course you can. <laughs> along the way, um, as you were training and doing what you do, uh, shelters said, animal shelters said, uh, we are killing too many animals and we want to become no-kill. And in an effort to do that over the years and attract donors, in all honesty, uh, who look at numbers, it's a numbers game with animal shelters, uh, strictly a numbers game. Uh, In recent years, what some shelters who are so-called no-kill will do is they will say, 
okay, we need to take that dog from animal control. We need to hire a trainer who can, quote, unquote, fix that dog's, usually it's aggression, fix that dog's aggression in five days, eight days, two weeks, whatever the time frame is, but a short time frame, and then adopt the dog out. And those trainers tend, the only way they can do this is they're not uh, changing how the dog feels, but they're uh, moderating behavior. Uh, as you can intimidate a dog, probably a person, to do just about anything. And that's what they're doing using generally aversive or very aversive methods, punishment-based. Well, and, you've and opened then, a little bit of a big can. I know. And, and I know, talk about okay. it. Okay, so here's the thing. You described it being a money game. And in that money game, the dog is an object. And that object is not a social subject, is not a person, but is something that must have its square peg or its bitey peg pounded into a round Peggy, hole. Peggy, I'm and, gonna, Peggy, I yeah. need to stop you at the round hole because we need to break for news and then we'll come back and fill okay, that hole no when we come yep. back on WGN. Next week, highlights from our recent trip to Denver for the convention of the American Veterinary Medical Association. They know everything I do. They're based right here in Schaumburg. Shh, I cannot keep it a secret from them. If I talk about it on the radio, they know about it, and I'm always happy to work with the AVMA. I want to do this, sort of a public service reminder. I know you know all all about this, but I'll tell you, if I, I don't understand why this happens. I mean, no one wants to see their dog die in a hot car. Yet, 47 animals this year have done so that will no doubt likely blow by the number of 56, which was last year's number. And a reminder that on an 80-degree day, a car will heat up to well over 100 degrees in 15 minutes. Even with the windows open a crack for dogs, that is a potential death sentence. You can find lots more on my blog, stevedalepetworld.com. Dog trainer Peggy Moran is here. We're talking about Filling a square hole with a round hole or something like that. I forget yeah. what the analogy was. But something lame. <laughs> no, but the importance is there is a tendency now, and I want to address this. I mean, this is a serious, important topic that some shelters, including some in the Chicago area, are saying, we want to increase our numbers. We want to increase our adoptions, impress our donors. It's a numbers thing. It's a money thing. And therefore, we want to save more lives. Well, but are they doing this the right way? And in all honesty, some of these lives for some of these dogs that are so extremely aggressive, well, maybe choose that life instead. How can you choose one over the other? But they're training these dogs then to be not aggressive by using electronic collars and such. So what are they really teaching these dogs? It's a controversial issue for sure, and that's where we left off, Peggy. We did, and and I think what what I was saying, and I'll stick to this piece, is that when you objectify a non-human animal, and I'm going to start with the word animals. We have humans and animals, and what that means is on one side we have one species, the human, we, and then on the other side collectively lumped together every other living being other than plants fits into this single word, the animals. And I think right there, instead of seeing, you know, in a given shelter, there's an individual dog who's having an individual experience, who is not an object, who is not a number, who's a someone. And when the shock collar is put on that dog, that dog personally experiences pain and fear. 
And that's not a numbers problem. That's a very, very individual suffering problem. And when we desensitize ourselves to that and we refuse to see that individual, um, we're doing a lot of harm. And I know there's, it's, a, it's a spectrum. It's very difficult to be black and white. And when you drive your car, myriad insects hit the windshield, and each of those are lives. And we tend to scale it and say, well, let's, we have to triage this. Where is greater suffering? Where is suffering of greater expense to the human? Where is there a great benefit to the human? And we have to be able to do the calculus that considers the value of pain and suffering and quality of life, not just money and placement. And, you know, this is where shelters have to be held accountable. We have to, as individuals, hold ourselves accountable. But I think those larger organizations are setting precedents that, you know, it's not fair to the to the individual going to get a dog to, um, you know, let's say that dog's been trained aversively and they're given his sob story and then he's placed in their home and now that dog causes harm to their family or is himself harmed. Well, now you've lost a viable family who no longer wants to have a dog or, you know, within the community it's impacting the reputation of certain dogs or their breeds. This is a bigger problem than just dog training. And and that's it has to be known. It has to be seen in a way that we open our eyes. The way I had to open my eyes to training methods needed to be bigger than just what I knew. I went back to school. I went to college when I was 49 years old. I remember. So I said, you know, yes. you can teach an old dog trainer new tricks. <laughs> I, just, I, I feel a huge responsibility that if I'm going to touch other lives, human and non-human, that I have to have the most information I can get to do the least amount of harm. And I think we each need to have that, you know, that attitude. Shelters mean well. You know that. You, of all people, see that. But, but how does it switch? I'm going to ask you a question. How does it convert from these intentions of love and care and rescue and saving? How does it turn into a production line of turning out animals where abusive methods might be acceptable to just get the dog into any home? Well, abusive methods, of course, should never be acceptable because what you're doing is creating a ticking time bomb. And once in that home, ultimately, the overwhelming majority of dogs, so if they're aggressive, they're likely fearful. And by using aversive methods, you can stop that for a time. You can moderate the behavior. You can adjust the behavior. But you're really not changing the mindset. What's more you're generally making matters worse in the long run because by using aversive methods, by using punishment on a fearful dog, and generally that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about dogs who steal food off counters or anything. We're talking about major problems that mean life or death for that dog. But I would argue, as difficult as it is to say, for some of these dogs, for the safety of the community, and I will tell you, most veterinarians, I agree well, I mean, most veterinarians I talk to about this do agree with what I'm saying about this because what they've seen, and many dog trainers will say privately, if not publicly, what they've seen in the past 10 years, 8 years, something like that, are more uh, seriously aggressive dogs that never should have been adopted out in the first place. And now that family comes to someone like Peggy Moran. They come to someone like you, they're desperate i mean is this i mean are you seeing this as well yeah and i think here's the thing there's no natural selection for an artificially bred and produced domestic species 
there is no survival, you know, based upon, um, you know, environmental circumstances. It's humans breeding and feeding and producing a, a, a large number of animals where suddenly the desperation to get them into a home overrides getting them into the right home. Or, let's be humane to the humans as well, having a dog who won't inadvertently, accidentally harm human family members. And the when you have 400 excess dogs and only 40 people able to give them homes, then you have people on the shelter side that are just desperate to save those other lives, and they want to get them into a home, any home, because life matters, and they want to save those lives. And this is the hard question I think you're coming up to is, you know, and maybe I'll just ask you, do you think that behavioral euthanasia is called for in some cases in the shelter environment where there's certain animals who are not going to live a quality life? It's almost guaranteed. And that, that punishment piece that you talked about, you know, suppressing the behavior temporarily, but that fearful emotion not being resolved, we as behaviorists know there's a phenomenon called recovery from punishment which means when a behavior is temporarily subdued by punishment, like a shock collar, when that equipment is removed and the dog starts acclimating to the new home, a lot of those behaviors not only come back, but they come back stronger than they were in the beginning as a rebound from that punishment trauma they've experienced. So we have a bigger problem than, you know, just training methodology. There's a a problem of should every single dog go into a home? And what's your thoughts on that? Well, what are your I mean, thoughts? You're you're <laughs> well, I think I, you know mine because I've expressed them. I, I think that as difficult as it is to talk about, as difficult as it is to say, no, not every dog should be. And, and it's a sad thing to have to say, but it is the truth. What do you think? And we only have about 30 seconds here. I think that there is, I think that we have to use a triage approach and we have to look at what is the most humane option for the dog and putting a dog into a warehouse for 14 years because no one has the willingness to say a good short life is better than this extended suffering or you know that some dogs just have such high liability that to place them in the home is to endanger the community i think there are dogs that cannot get placed in a home and i think in those cases yeah euthanasia may be called for yeah it's the last choice yeah yeah i i agree i i'm I'm agreeing with you, and we should both point out, because I think we both agree on this, we are talking about a minority, a very, very small minority of dogs, but nevertheless, it's, it's important to talk about. It's the last choice. Yeah. All right, so I want to talk about service dogs and you working with veterans. Amazing work you do. We will talk about that when we come back with Peggy Moran, Tough Topics on WGN. Dog trainer Peggy Moran is amazing. She has taught every kind of dog training class I bet there is to ever teach. Uh, But now you're helping veterans. How did you get involved with all this? Uh, You know, I've been working as a private civilian dog trainer, and I had a client approach me uh, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, with... um, a dog that he needed to train to be a service dog, and he was a disabled veteran who had post-traumatic stress disorder. And he and I began investigating the how to, the how to get it funded, the you know what tasks the dog needed to be able to perform, and it was a learning curve for me. You know, and I was excited to learn how to 
have um, a new set of skills and how to have those skills actually help dogs enjoy an enhanced quality of life while helping their human partners have an enhanced quality of life. And it grew from there because we ended up working with a nonprofit organization, um, the Semper Fi Fund, and I started training dogs individually for them. And then um, an organization approached me, and over time I've become their training director and have helped that program grow. Am I allowed to say the name of the you organization? You bet, and, and we'll give the website. But let's let's wait a moment just because for some people – they may want to run and get a pen. So if if you are a veteran, can you go to this organization? Give us the name of the organization. Can you go to this organization and say, I'd like a service dog, too, and get on some sort of list? Yeah, we're actually, um, it's American Veterans Service Dog Academy. And we are now affiliated with a community college where we do a lot of our instruction in the community college, and we're doing that so that we can voluntarily provide oversight and, um, you know, ethical gatekeeping more or less for our own practices by having a larger organization within which we meet their criteria, not just our own. And we feel in this industry it's really important. since There are no licensure or certification um, organizations at this point nationally that can give accrediting to a service dog organization, we felt bringing it into academe was the next best thing. Um, so AVSDA.com, American Veterans Service Dog Academy, is the um, organization and the website. And any veteran who has had an honorable discharge, um, and even some active duty veterans we do work with, um, provided there is a primary diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. We work with... Um, secondary uh, uh, um, disabilities and diagnoses, but our primary diagnosis is post-traumatic stress. And what do and these dogs, they, Peggy, ahead, what, what do these dogs do for the veterans? And are, are these dogs, over, let me ask a question, two questions, I'm cheating. Uh, the first question, the second question I just asked, what do the dogs do for the veterans? The first question, where do they get the dogs from in the first place? Are these owned dogs that you take, or are these puppies that you say, okay, to, you work with breeders also? Both. Um, ideally, we prefer purpose-bred dogs who have long genetic health histories and temperament histories and backgrounds that suit them for this kind of partnership and work. And if you already have a dog and that dog is your bonded partner, we would definitely want to do an assessment of your dog and see if your dog can meet criteria to be your service animal because you already have that bond. But not every dog can do the work. And for some dogs, being in public spaces is just too stressful. Um, and in those cases, we'll still work with the veteran and get them all the way through the human side of the program since this really is a people training program. Um, the benefits to the veteran are still there, and they're very great. And we can teach tasking that the dog can perform at home, and then, you know, they get the emotional support and they get the service dog tasking at home, but they just can't take their dog into public spaces if the dog doesn't meet all of the confidence and temperament criteria. And what do so, the dogs do for veterans with a post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome, which, by the way, are veterans... So at one point, the VA, years ago... I don't recall how many, maybe 15 years ago, said, oh, really, a, a PTSD doesn't really exist. It's, you know, kind of all in their heads. Well, they have a very different take on that now. 
Go to their website. There's lots of information. Yeah, you, can, you can thank Maggie O'Hare at Purdue University well, for hang a on. large amount of research well, that's brought some you're, to the, yeah, yeah, to you're, the a, you're ahead of me. So Sorry. the VA the VA now concedes that PTSD is a real thing. What they don't concede is that these dogs are able to help. They, they just throw drugs at the problem. More pharmaceuticals, more pharmaceuticals. And it turns out, by the way, with a dog, Dr. O'Hare, who you're referring to, and others, uh, have now said, it's not only Dr. O'Hare, who have now... Right, uh, there's who, many. Yeah, yeah, who have now said, okay, with a dog, these veterans need either fewer drugs or half the drugs or less, or, uh, less uh, potent prescriptions. But what's more, and more importantly, are the number of suicides. I th- That's the biggest issue. Yeah. And, you know, the quality of life, even if you do have to stay on your drugs. We don't say that the dog replaces drugs. We don't recommend that the veterans suddenly stop their treatment. In fact, it's a requirement they are in treatment for the duration of their participation in our program. But the quality of life is so improved, and the length of life, you know, reducing the um, veteran suicide rate to that of the civilian population has been evidenced with um, the pairing with a service dog, and that's really significant. Our our motto is saving, saving veterans one dog at a time. And I think that, you know, that's our goal. Well, so. and indeed, that's the case. What's more, uh, the veterans are more likely to be employed and therefore contributing to society rather than, quote, taking from society by getting unemployment, that kind of thing. And what's most important is what our veterans, in my opinion, and I'm certain you agree, what our veterans deserve. They just yeah. deserve the best quality of life after having given their life in many cases, or at least their psyche, for us. What's fascinating is when I meet most of the veterans, they're very eager and willing to offer their support, love, care, companionship, um, you know, everything to the dog. And the dogs, of course, benefit and live their best lives this way. But they have a little more difficulty accepting the dog giving to them and teaching them to trust and Hmm. teaching them to be worthy recipients of love and care is a really significant part of this program because that allows the dog to fulfill her role as a giver. If the dog is only ever receiving, the dog is a lucky beneficiary of that, but a pure partner is going to give and receive. Uh, And that's, uh, you know, what we teach. Peggy, give us the website one more time. www.avsda. Which American stands. Veterans Service Dog Academy.com. Okay, perfect. Wow, great to catch up with you. You are amazing. Thank you. So are you. You know it. <laughs> I don't We're, know that, but I know you are. you are. Thank you so much, Peggy. Steve, thanks. The heck with those dogs. Let's talk about cats. Want a better behaved cat? Well, the solution might be interactive play. A team of researchers led by uh, an expert at the University of Adelaide in Australia found that, did that sound like Australian? Australia. No, really doesn't, does it? Found that playing with your cat nurtures the human-animal bond and can also address behavior problems. Who thought that taking one of those interactive toys, like a fishing pole-type toy with feathers or fabric at the end of the toy, can actually help with behavior problems? But in fact, and I've been saying this for years, it really does make a difference. So cats, if it's a cat, any cat, anywhere, a cat is born with a prey drive. And this allows cats to exercise that 
play drive, as well as have some physical exercise, which is good in of itself. It helps relieve stress, say the researcher's frustration or unease. And there's a list here of behavior problems, a long list that it turns out, according to the study, that interactive play helps. Now, another study, I have yet another study that demonstrates the importance of playing with your cat. Now, this study indicates study was that focus was a bit different so this study looked at the human animal bond and suggests that the human animal bond is more intensified among cat parents who play with their cat now i'm not talking about running up and down a hallway with the cat i'm talking about just the same thing you're not physically playing with the cat the toy is the interactive toy at the end of a fishing pole type thing, of feathers or fabric or whatever it is. So you're not actively engaged, but somehow, some way, it appears that the cats associate the good time they're having with you. You're always there because you're holding that toy. Interesting and important stuff if you happen to have a cat. We'll talk to you next week bright and early. We'll talk to dogs, cats, and you on WGN.